Welcome to the Bakersfield Whiskey Society podcast. At the Bakersfield Whiskey Society, we know you want to be a whiskey expert. And in order to do that, you need to drink and learn about whiskey. The problem is, whiskey can be intimidating. And that often leaves you feeling confused and frustrated. Well, we're here to help take the mystery out of whiskey. To help you understand what you like and why you like it. So kick back, pour yourself a glass of something, unless you're driving. And get ready to learn what you like and why you like it. This is the Bakersfield Whiskey Society Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Bakersfield Whiskey Society Podcast, and we are so excited today. By the end of our time together, you're going to know what's going on in the world of spirits and whiskey and how you can support the spirits that you really love in this time of uncertainty. More importantly, you're going to have some newfound knowledge about whiskey and some ideas for staying at home that's going to make it a little bit more enjoyable and you're going to be excited in this time of chaos and you're going to have some connection to those brands and the spirits and the liquid that we love so much. And we are so excited to have Robin Robinson here with us today. He's built small brands for most of his life and is currently working with a lot of small brands across the U.S. to help them enter the market and really endure this volatile and competitive marketplace. Throughout his life, he's developed a love of scotch and American whiskeys. And uh, he's actually been a lecturer on both subjects. In his 10th year now, he's created and teaches the longest-running continuous whiskey class in the U.S., the Whiskey Smackdown at the Astor Center in New York. Robin's been a lecturer on various sales and marketing topics, and uh, he is a true expert, which I shouldn't use, and we'll talk about the word expert here, but but he's a man <laughs> with an opinion, and uh, we are so excited to have him here today. Robin, welcome. Hey, thanks, Tim. Great to be here. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, give us a little update, right? What's going on in the, the world right now? Wow. Wow. So yeah, man, this is uh, drinking in a time of plague, right? So here we are, what's our, maybe into our second, maybe third week of uh, coronavirus lockdown here everywhere. And what I wanted to do is really kind of give your listeners a, sort of an update on what's going on in the industry. So the liquor industry of which whiskeys are part of, are part of a long supply chain of what we call the hospitality industry. And whiskey starts out uh, being made by a supplier. And that supplier could be a big supplier like uh, like Johnny Walker. Or it could be a small supplier like the distillery right next to you. And they, in turn, have a product and they want to get that product out into the marketplace. And so they are legally allowed to sell it to a distribution wholesaler. And that distributor wholesaler has a sales team. And the sales team then is allowed to sell that to the next layer, the next tier, which is uh, the trade, which is uh, both on-premise, which is bars and restaurants, or or off-premise, which are package stores and retail shops. And then they, in turn, are legally allowed to sell it to the consumer. So that's what we call the three-tier system. It's been around since the end of Prohibition. And right now, as you can probably imagine, that's in lockdown. And it's affecting every aspect of it. So uh, we have wholesalers uh, that have got nothing to sell to the next level. Right now, there has been, uh, thankfully, there has been a huge run on off-premise retail. So essentially, like, like toilet paper, people are stocking up on liquor. So off-premise sales have really been kind of like you know, through the roof. But unfortunately, bars and restaurants have all been shut down. These are the gathering places, right, where you can drink 
on premise. And they've been shut down. And as a result, that group has really been hurt. Then addition to that, all the small producers, of which now there are over 2,000 in the United States, and that's up from 60 from only 20 years ago, right? These guys are operating at small margin. And so they're having, uh, you know, they've got to compete with the larger companies about how to get a brand to market and to get it into someone's head so they'll buy it. So they're being affected uh, negatively as well. So a couple things have been out there. There are GoFundMe pages for bars and restaurants. There are virtual cocktail bars that are happening right now where, for example, if you have a drink at home, put a couple dollars into a tip jar and then collect that over a week or so and then send that off to a local bar that can actually help mm. keep uh, some of their bartenders and wait staff with a little bit of cash flow. There are also Venmo, uh, FundMe arrangements that are out there, PayPal. What we're trying to do is keep that, the, the dollars flowing into the industry to help these people out. These are the people that consumers go to for entertainment and relief. And this, these are the people that brands go to in order to get them actually sell their individual brands. So they're kind of caught in the middle and we're going to try to do everything we can to, uh, to help them out. Yeah. Well, you know, just in listening to you, you talk, right, you, you hit on one of the most interesting and in, in probably my favorite aspect of the spirits industry, and that's that social connection. I yeah. certainly enjoy a drink at home alone sometimes to finish the night. But what I love, and I know you love and most of our listeners love, is that ability to, to have a drink with someone you care about or that new friend or the, the person you've just met, right, to build that social connection. And so, right, so here in the virtual cocktail hours or the ideas of leaving a tip in a jar as you have a drink during the week and sending it to your favorite establishment, right? What a great way for our community to come together. And, you know, really, this is brilliant. Right, community is part of the story of whiskey, isn't it? It's, it, it is the story of whiskey. It, it is the whole. When you look at all of the communities that came together, whether it was in the East or whether it was in the West, uh, the social aspect of this is really what drove it, you know, is what drove it. In my book, I wrote a a little bit of a sort of a a couple lines on on what philosophically what whiskey means to me. And and if you like, I'd be more than happy to read it for you right now. Yeah, I, I would love to hear that. It says, we stand together each with a glass of whiskey in our hands. We know its heritage, we know its process, and we know its age, but the glass is empty unless we recognize the space between us. For that's where the whiskey gets its life, its meaning, its connection to our past, mm. and us to each other. So make your toasts and raise your glasses, but hold fast those liquid bonds that they do not evaporate into the air. Beautifully said, right? I, I, you said like a, a man who, who understands the, the industry. So I don't have a class, but I'll, I'll raise a bottle for you. There you go, man. Yeah, right, there you go. Right, virtual, virtual toast here. There we go. Virtual toast. Cheers. <laughs> right. so, There's my Deanston, right? Hey, hey, excellent. Right. So, right, going to that philosophy, right? There, there's so much we can cover, right? There's no way we're going to just distill 10 years of knowledge in your complete whiskey course and into a short conversation here. But, you know, let's, right, where does your love of this come from? And, you know, what are some surprises that, that you've learned just in terms of kind of exploring whiskey and, and really what is whiskey? 
Yeah. So, boy, okay. So that's a couple of questions. So Genesis story real quick. I used to be an actor in New York City and I was hired to impersonate a Scottish distiller uh, many, many, uh, a few decades ago, right? Before anybody knew what, I had never heard the word single malt Scotch whiskey before in my life. This is kind of like in the, in the mid eighties, but I practiced my Scotty accent and absorbed a whole bunch of, of reading material. And for four hours, pretty much snookered a group of private individuals in a dinner scenario on Park Avenue in New York City. That night, I absolutely fell madly in love with Scotch whiskey. Next day, I went out and bought my first bottle. And just so you know, it was, uh, it was a bottle of 12-year-old Macallan at 1995. Okay, so that'll tell you how long ago this was. And that was sort of like where the love affair started and it became an obsession. And over the years and the decades, you had to look for whiskey because whiskey wasn't drunk from about the 1970s until the 1990s. Whiskey, as I describe it, got caught in a mainstream shootout with vodka and lighter spirits and sort of ended up face down in the dirt full of bullet holes. For about 25 years, it was essentially just old man's drink. We were drinking. That's what my grandpa used to drink. Exactly. Right. And then, boom, you know, in the late 90s and then the 2000s, it just exploded into what we're doing right now. I mean, having podcasts about whiskeys and writing books about whiskey and, every, you know, searching and collecting. This was never, ever, ever, ever thought about before. And I will tell you, in the history of mankind, in the history of mankind, this has never, ever occurred before. So when you would go back a, a, like a millennia ago, as human beings, we understood that fermented beverages of some sort, either a fermented fruit and then later on a fermented grain, which became a beer and the fruit eventually became a wine that these had a curative effect for us and uh, they helped uh, mitigate or kill some of the microbes that were in the water at the time that we were ingesting. And people got to understand that this was actually something that was healthful. Not only was it healthful, but what else did it do is that it actually elevated your consciousness, doesn't it, for a very short amount of time. So that was the ales and the beers and the wines of antiquity. And then here comes this idea of taking something, natural ingredients, and then purifying them in an enclosed area, which is like a pot uh, under pressure using some liquid and heat. And that is what developed into distillation over a period of a few thousand years for many, many different reasons other than drinking, other than drinking. But it was this magical moment, probably around the turn of the last millennium or the second millennium, right? So somewhere around maybe 1100, 1200, where someone got the idea of putting some of this fermented beverage inside of one of these pots and purifying it and making it more intense. And what came out of there was a curative it was a disinfectant, it, what was re referred to in Latin, because it was the monks who were primarily responsible for this. It was referred to as aqua vitae, which meant water of life. And as that aqua vitae traveled around Europe and France, it became eau de vie up in the, the, uh, the Balkan countries. It became woda, which we get the word vodka from. 
as went up into the Nordic countries, it, it kept the word aquavit. They still use aquavit there today. But when it went over into what we now know as the British Isles, that was the land of the Gales and the land of the Celts. And they spoke a completely different language over there. And Aquavite got formed into, in Ireland specifically, Ishkabeha, which means water of life in Gaelic. And then that was translated into Celtic Gaelic in Scotland with Ushkaba. And then because both of those countries were subjugated by the British, the British took that word and turned that word into Wushka. And that's where we get our modern day whiskey right hmm. there. So you can follow that sort of etymology of language and see where this came out of. And in each one of these scenarios, it was really all about, it was a communal way to actually bring people together. You know, it could take the chill off a cold night. It could actually fire up a wedding ceremony or a wedding, a wedding feast. You know, if you ever look at any of these, those old Bruegel paintings, one of my favorite, you know, the wedding dances, you know, hey, let me tell you, they're tanked up on, on a lot more than beer and ale, right? Oh, so yes. they're actually drinking. <laughs> oh, yes. So yeah, communal, together, healthful, right? I mean, whiskey's always been considered a medicine, you mm -hmm. know? So yeah, it's got just a, a great background. It's got yeah. a terrific uh, uh, integration into society to this day, yeah. But right, we really have seen an absolute explosion lately, right? All the craft distilleries, it's right, people are, are trying and experimenting and doing so many new things. What do you think's behind that drive? Why are we seeing the explosion that we're seeing lately? Well, I think there's a couple things. I sort of uh, chalked it up to so, so like a perfect storm of a couple different events. But first of all, the current millennial generation is probably the most culinarily sophisticated generation to come down the pike, right? I mean, everybody in this generation has kind of grown up on the Food Channel and knowing who Tom Colicchio is and, and uh, Iron Chef and, and everybody knows what bruschetta is and, and what risotto is. And, and we've got this real avocado integration. Avocado and whatever it is. Avocado toast, yeah, exactly, yes. right, yeah. But, um, but primarily, you know, these cuisines that are very different from the standard American palate of meat and potatoes, mm -hmm. right? Standard American palate. So they're challenging. And so they're not afraid of flavors. And whiskey is really all about flavors. So you have that as one thing. Then you've got our, the internet and you've got our smartphones where we've got immediate access to information and knowledge that we primarily wouldn't have had before, right? And then you've got the, the resurgence of the craft cocktail, which, again, that's our friends in the on-premise that are out there right now. The craft cocktail started rediscovering all of these old recipes that were around for 75, 100, 150 years that used these darker spirits, that used brandies and rye and whiskey. And so all of these sort of came together. And then on top of that, you had this new DIY generation as well, right? I want to do it my own myself. Now I, I've learned about this. And quite honestly, the last economic downturn was a, was a massive boost because a lot of people just said, hey, I'm chucking this career, man. This did not work out for me. I want to go make some whiskey or vodka or gin or something like that. So that's, I think, what's at this explosion right here. One of the things I'd mentioned before that 
You know, in order to legally light distill in the United States, uh, you have to be granted uh, a federal license called a DSP, a distilled spirits plant. And, you know, you have to, you know, kind of fill out forms and you have to prove that you know, you're not going to kill anybody and that you're, you're actually operating safely. And there were only 60 of those licenses in the United States in the year 2000. Now, distilling at home was a home craft from uh, Ireland, Scotland, Canada, and the United States for hundreds of years. Prohibition killed all of that. I've got a chart at home that has, it's an XY chart, Mm -hmm. and it's a, a time versus amount. And it shows that about 1900, where all of these massive amount of distilleries that were listed in the United States. And at 1919, you just see like a drop down into the cellar and then just crawls along the bottom of the chart until you see a little perk up um, in the 21st century. So license, uh, it was mostly big corporations that owned distilling. It was Seagram's and Shenley and Hugh Blind. and, And they're the ones who we got all of our liquor from. And then boom, right? Explosion in 2000. And that 60 licenses is now, we've quit counting at 2100. Wow. So in 20 years. Yep. So within the, right, I'm also a wine guy. And and one of the dates that goes down in the history of wine is May 24th, 1976. Mm-hmm. Little wine, right? Little wine competition. Stephen Spurrier <laughs> held that blind tasting and California wines rocked the French wine world, right? Great movie. Great right. movie, right? Yeah. The shout out to, um, what's that? Bottle Shock. The, yeah, the Bottle movie Shock, that talks right? about. Yeah, exactly. Right. Great movie. The the book is even better. And right. Has there been an event like that? Or what have you seen just in terms of kind of opinions that people had about whiskey and how it's got to be made and the rules that have to be followed, as opposed to a lot of the experimentation that we're going on today? Has, Has there been an event like the Judgment of Paris that's taken place in the whiskey world? Not really, but I can tell you that the advent of of whiskey is really dependent on that moment, on that particular moment. Because at that point, what did California do? What did California Magdalena do? They essentially said that great wine can come from a place you've never heard of from a specific grape. And so suddenly, Americans learn how to pronounce Cabernet Sauvignon and Merlot and Chardonnay and, and all of these words. We you know, Typically before that, we were drinking Paul Maison. We were drinking Gallo. We were drinking brand named, you know, a vin, a Van Ordinaires. So all of a sudden, here's this taste and this desire to know more about the specifics, the specifics of production. Where that, what is the Russian River Valley? Right? How does Sonoma differ from Napa? Mm-hmm. What is the difference between a Merlot grape and a Pinot Noir grape? Right? All of these things. And when you start seeing the rise of whiskey, it starts with a lot of, of Scotch whiskey with single malt whiskeys. So for the first time, it wasn't a Dewar's. It wasn't a black and white. It wasn't Hague and Hague. It was Glenfiddich that came from one specific distillery that made in this particular way. And so it tastes just like this. 
And then here comes McAllen, which is different, and then Lefroig, and then Glenlivet. And you saw through the 1960s, and remember, single malt whiskeys didn't really occur commercially until 1964. And that was the first uh, shipment of Glenfiddich to come across the ocean as an all malt, as a not just a, a typical blend. And so this becomes the, the, the gathering point right here. And it takes a while. And then, you know, American whiskey had been pretty much in a, a funk. Bourbon was really not drunk by anybody. And whiskey was, you know, I grew up in Pittsburgh. I mean, we were, you know, you know we invented shot beers. Uh, the boiler maker, and uh, whiskey was all. We all learned how to drink it wrong, right? <laughs> we learned how to just throw it back there mm-hmm. as quick as possible and down it with a beer and just get over it. So whiskey didn't have to be good. It didn't. It didn't follow a cuisine aspect. It didn't. We didn't ascribe flavors to it. It was just whiskey. Just yeah. drink it. And it was either harsh or smooth. Yep. You know. So, yeah, so it was more of a long-term gathering, and American whiskey was the last to actually join that, and then, boom, boom. bourbon just, yeah, just, man, it just like, it hockey stick on the uh, on the chart, and then followed by Japanese, mm-hmm. you know, followed by Japanese whiskey, and uh, they've been really leading the uh, the new resurgence now. Yeah, you absolutely. Know, cool. I was going to say, I, I want to turn to the book you put together for a second, because I've had a chance to, to go through it, right? Got to see a presentation that you did based around that. Shout out to my good friends at the Southern California Whiskey Club. And, and you yeah, know, for, guys. for our listeners, I, I just I want to read a couple of the reviews of your book here that, that are on Amazon, right? It's a must have for whiskey fans essential book for every whiskey lover. Very educational, very one well written. Anyone with the slightest interest in whiskey should get this book. And I'll tell you, I agree. The praises are not being sung in vain here. It, it, it is a complete class on whiskey. And so so talk to us a little bit about kind of the, the genesis, because you base this around your, your course that you've been teaching for ages, in a sense. Right? Yeah, well, well, it is. It's kind of like a, it's, it's a mashup of two things. So the Whiskey Smackdowns I've been doing now, I'm currently in my 11th year. I started these back in 2009 or 2008. And I look at them like, you know, I do six whiskeys in a class. And quite honestly, I'm having such a great time in class. It's a goof. You know, I get to riff. I get to like, you know, tell terrible puns and but talk seriously about the whiskeys. Well, one day about three and a half years ago, one of my students comes up to me afterwards and introduces himself, hands me his business card and says, hey, so I'm an editor for uh, this publishing company called Sterling Epicure. And here's the kind of books that we've done. We've done uh, Clay Risen's American Whiskey, Bourbon and Rye. But most specifically, we've done Kevin's Rayleigh's Windows on the World Complete Wine Course. Now, yep. you're a wine guy. Yeah, and you know, you know exactly about that book, right? Kevin Zraeli used mm-hmm. to run the wine program at Windows on the World when it was still around, and he still runs the training class called the Windows on the World Complete Wine Course uh, in other places. But you know, Kevin wrote a book for them 30 years ago, and it's now sold over three million copies. And when you talk to anybody in the wine world, everyone will tell you that's the book that Absolutely. you have to have. Yep. 
It's the number one book, whether you're a, 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 an aficionado, whether you're a, a beginner, a newcomer, or if you're a professional in the field, this is the ultimate reference book. The editor said to me, we've got that book, and that's obviously doing well. We had a guy about 10 years ago write a complete beer course book that followed the same path for beer, and now we want someone to write the complete whiskey course. And I was like thrown, right? I said, wow, um, yeah, okay, so let's so we had a, a lot of talks about it. It actually took a year before the contract actually got put in front of me. And then they gave me a very short window to, to write it in. And when I started, I said, okay, you know, we're going to do it in concept of classes. Mm-hmm. And each class will be a separate instruction. And there will be a tasting guide at the end of each class. And this is really meant for everyone. So, you know, the problem that I had is that as a whiskey nerd, I'll jump down any rabbit hole that I can of detail. And there was a constant struggle between me and the editors about how much detail to put in there, how much depth to put in there. And the other thing, I didn't want to write a quote unquote textbook on whiskey because they're dry and boring. And I, I have 29 whiskey books at home. Most of them I haven't even broken open you know, because I bought them because they're friends of mine or I bought them because that was the book to actually have. I went through them one or two times. I said, wow, I just, it's just too dense reading for me. I just don't feel like going into this now. So I did not want to write that book, right? So I traveled all around the, uh, the world um, for about four months. I went from India to Japan, uh, Scotland, Ireland, Canada, Kentucky a couple times. And I interviewed some of the top whiskey makers in the world. And, you know, I've been in my life to about 160, 165 distilleries around the world so far in the past 25 years. So I know how the plumbing works. I'm not interested in going on, quote unquote, the tour. I want to sit down with the whiskey maker in their place of business and get to what's going on in the bottom of the glass. How did we arrive there? How much of this was you, decisions that you made? How much of this was mandated by company policy? How much of it is mandated by cultural influence? What are those things that actually allows you to make this flavor in the glass? So that was the gist that was underneath, you know, to get to the bottom of that. And at the same time, write it at a, a high enough level that this was the, the, the pool that everybody can get at least their feet wet in and then learn how to actually swim, you know, into the deeper areas. And then you can kind of go off and hit like some of the really intense blogs about, you know, some detail. So that was really the, that that was the concept behind the book. And and as you can see, it's heavily illustrated. There's like some magnificent photographs in there. Um, I took photographs everywhere I went, and then I came back and showed them to the the editors. And they said, well, you know, we probably should have given you a high res. I said, oh, you tell me now, right? So what they did, though, what the photo editor did was followed my uh, the narrative through that. And she found and we solicited a, a lot of magnificent photographs that illustrate what I was saying inside the text. I got a couple of my illustrations in there, a couple of diagrams that I've, uh, I drew 
that I thought were important to kind of illustrate, you know, a certain thing like, you know, how do they make cuts at the, uh, at the spirit safe. But uh, yeah, I was very, I was just very happy. They gave me final approval on all the photographs. And so mm-hmm. I went through each one of them said, yeah, no, yeah, yeah, no. And I got about maybe a dozen of mine in there that were high res enough, you know, so. It, it, yeah. And it's such an inviting book, right? For, for those of you who are listening, who are going to pick this up, it, it's a book you pick up and you're drawn into, which is a unique thing. Cause some books you pick up and you, you struggle with, you're like, where do I go? Or it feels just absolutely overwhelming. This is something, right? It really does, I think, strike a good balance between being able to go in depth on things. But yet also, if you just want to pick it up and read for five minutes, you can find something in there and break it down. And a lot of my favorite whiskeys are in here. It's just absolutely brilliant. Yeah, I did. So yeah, and I'm going to credit the team I worked with. I'm credit my editorial team, my editor, both James J.O. and John Miles were fantastic. Also, Christine Hewn, who actually, she was the interior designer. She made it look that inviting, yeah. right? Linda Lang, she was the photo editor. I mean, they it was a really great team I worked with and we were very tight at the end. And that was the whole idea. You should be able to go in there and, and turn to any page and grab something out of that and not feel like, you know, gee, I have to start at the beginning of this chapter, you know, in order for me to understand this. Yeah. So for those of us stuck at home right now, Right. If we wanted to, to use this to, to kind of create a little class for ourselves, how would you recommend we go through this? And how can we use this to use this time of isolation to actually learn and, and grow with our friends? So it's broken into classes and each class is a chapter. And so the first class is really all about what is whiskey. It defines whiskey. It goes through the history of whiskey. Where did it come from? It talks about the production, you know, what is a still, how does a still work, what does a barrel do, what are the flavors that each one of the grains implies, and it categorizes it as well. So that's like the first one. So that would probably be almost an essential chapter to read so that when you go from country to country, you have a reference point. And again, it's written for the layman. It's written for every, you know, in everyday vernacular. And then you could just pick a chapter after that. You can say, well, okay, I think, um, you know, I'm going to skip over everything. I'm going to go straight to world whiskey. What's going on outside of the five main whiskey making countries in the world? So the, the top five are in no particular order, uh, Japan, Scotland, Ireland, United States, and Canada. And in the past 20 years, I mean, we're getting whiskey from Australia, from Taiwan, from South Africa, from Wales and England, Czech Republic, uh, Germany, India, France. France now probably has 50 new Mm -hmm. or planned distilleries focused specifically on grain, not even on just like converting over from like brandy. India is going to be a major force. So that would be, and, and then you can actually just go through at the end of every chat, throughout every chapter, I have these call outs called Drink This, mm-hmm. where I'll call out specific bottles that are pertinent to that area yeah. of reading. And then at the end of every chapter, there is a guided tasting list. Yep. And so if you go to the end of uh, World Whiskey, which I think if you've got a book in your yep. hand, it right is on there. page 265. 
you'll see uh, two pages right there. Uh, first of all, kind of a guide as to how I do some scoring on that as far as pricing guides. And then there is a list of some uh, some whiskeys that if you can go out and find these guys or contact them online. Yeah. So yeah, or, there's a list. Or even similar styles. You could say, what do you have that's similar to this, right? Maybe you get an American whiskey, a Canadian whiskey, an Irish whiskey, Japanese whiskey, and a stock. That's going to be, we actually had that, and we, uh, because of, of room, we actually had to cut that out, unfortunately. Okay. That would probably be on uh, the second edition. Yeah. So if you like this, then try this. Correct. But right, right yeah, yeah, just, yeah, so for, that just would for people be. at home who are listening to this, if they want to do something with their friends, Right, get a couple friends together, and you know, each one of you buy two bottles of something. You can yep. share samples back and forth, and then, then go to this together. And right, what a great way to once again have community, which is what we love about these spirits, is, is it brings us together. There is a, a chapter at the last chapter, uh, class ten, is called whiskey at home. Oh, there and you go. It's and and it's specifically yeah. about that. You know, like uh, it talks about glassware. You know, different types of glassware. What does on and off premise mean? You know, the dangers of drinking alone, (laughs) how to have a party, how to conduct the party, what type of food to bring, you know, Uh, clubs, you know, for example, I got a listing of, of, uh, of whiskey clubs, like Southern California Whiskey Club, I got listed in there around the country, how to build a collection at home. So, yeah. So actually, let's let's touch on two things real quick, right? Glassware. What's up with glassware? There's lots of different glasses. What makes one better or different? And how do we sort through those things? Here's the proviso on glassware. Respect the alcohol. That's number one. So you always have to remember that what's going on inside that glass is different than what's going on inside of a, a glass of beer or a glass of wine, specifically the high proof that's in that glass. And it's at minimum 40% alcohol, whereas, you know, beer is about 7% and wine is maybe 14%, right? So the first thing you don't want to do is stick your nose into any glass because (laughs) you'll go through what is known as a condition called anosmia. And anosmia is essentially an olfactory blindness that will happen as a result of you smelling something too often and you can't smell it anymore and the result of high ethanol just actually just like shutting down your olfactory system. So with that in mind, some glasses actually bring the aromas to the nose a lot better than other glasses and some are built for different things. So the typical rocks glass that that you see on every bar is just a a, a squat open cylinder of glass, right? That's not a great glass for kind of capturing a lot of variance and subtle aromas because the ethanol is carrying those congeners just straight out of that glass without any concentration. And that glass is built for whiskey on the rocks or a cocktail. So that's a much more sociable glass. Also, you'll notice that if you lift that thing up to your mouth and drink from it, you're still looking across it to the person across from you. So it's a much more sociable type of a glass. So that's great for scotch on the rocks, whiskey on the rocks, whiskey cocktail, something like that. Then you get into the glasses that have some sort of a bulb in which the aromas can then actually, the esters, as we, as we call them, that the esters can actually can expand into and then deliver that to your nose. 
Now, the most ubiquitous one out there is called the Glencairn glass. I think everybody's got a thousand Glencairns there. That's almost the, the iconic standard whiskey glass. And it's an excellent glass for expanding those esters, but it does concentrate them with a very kind of a narrow shaft on top of that. So you have to be aware that maybe you should put a little bit of water in that and bring the alcohol vapor down so that you don't get zapped with a lot of that ethanol burn. There is a glass out there that is, is my preferred glass for nosing spirits, which is called the NEAT glass. And it's an acronym for Naturally Engineered Aroma Technology. And this was specifically designed to release the ethanol and capture all of the congeners and all of the, the, the aromas so that you don't get the burn. And then there's a lot of variations. There's one that was made by Riedel, which is a beautiful glass, a gorgeous glass. One made by a company called Tuwa, uh, called an Irish whiskey glass. There's one made by, uh, one of my favorites is one by Spiegelau. It's a baseless glass, so it's a sort of a round it has no base on it. It's large and round, has a nice little taper at the neck and, and a little bit of a flare. And it's big enough if you want to take like a big cube or if you want to put a cylinder of ice in there, uh, you can do that and uh, it'll, it'll fit in there. Uh, that's a lovely glass. I try to ca have people stay away from shot glasses, which is what I call um, an alcohol delivery device. Yep. So it's an ADD. You know? So anything that's sort of like even a wine glass with a stem is a preferable glass. If you're drinking single malts or if you're drinking a really fine bourbon, you want to capture some of that nuanced and aroma in there. If you're drinking sociably, you know, anything short of a uh, of a red solo cup, I think is uh is yeah. <laughs> a right, good glass. It is. It's about capturing the aroma so that we can enjoy them because yeah. part of what we're tasting is actually what we're smelling too. Right. And yes. people don't realize that, that there's a real connection between what we smell versus what we taste. Well, the action is in your nose. So there we've got about there are 36,000 what's called dendrites uh, that uh, emanate out of your olfactory bulb, you know, and they, they sit in your mucous membrane and they're picking up congeners from the air all the time. We have, as human beings, we have the ability, and this is an estimate by scientists, that we have the ability to pick up a billion, a, a billion different aromas out in the, the environment, a billion. So you can imagine what a dog picks up, yeah. right? right? So we've got an incredibly sensitive instrument there, but most people don't smell until it goes into their mouth. Now, the mouth is good for a couple things. The tongue has papillae, and the papillae have those taste buds in them. But instead of picking up aromas from the air that we can do, they have to come in contact with your tongue. And when they come in contact with your tongue, they're split up into only five major groups, right? Sweet, sour, bitter, salty, and then umami, which is kind of like you know, savory. However, what the tongue is excellent for is picking up texture and weight. Mm -hmm. So let's take the example of a, a raspberry. So if you smell a raspberry, you can smell this raspberry aroma that comes that emanates off of it. And then you put it in your mouth and you feel the lightness and the fuzziness of the raspberry. And then you bite down into it 
and it releases the juices, which you'll pick up as both sweet and tart. And what happens is the nerve that comes from the back of your tongue meets the nerve that comes from that bulb, the olfactory bulb, and they meet in the same place in your brain. And your brain says, oh, raspberry. So it's a combination of these things. So if you shut your nose down, you're not going to pick anything up. Anyone who has a cold knows that, right? You, know, you just, you know, you, you hold your nose and try to, to taste something. You can't do it. It's the combination of your nose and your mouth, and that's your perception, right? It, given the fact that, you know, you didn't get hit in the back of the head or if you don't have, you don't have the flu or anything like that. So, yeah, we start with the nose. We start with our eyes, right? You know, digestion starts with the eyes. Mm-hmm. We start with our nose. We start with our eyes, and then we finish it. The way that I describe the tasting experience is that the nose is the promise, Mm. the palate or the mouth is the now, and then after you swallow it, the finish, that's the echo. And so what you're looking for is the promise, the now, and the echo. And you're looking to actually kind of, you know, create the experience that way. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. I'm Tim McNeely, Bakersfield Whiskey Society, talking to Robin Robinson, author of The Complete Whiskey Course. And if you're enjoying some of the things you're learning today, we have just barely scratched the surface of what is in this book. It's beautifully illustrated. I cannot recommend it enough. And and in your intro, right, I want to stand corrected. I did refer to you as a whiskey expert. And I want to to spend a little (laughs) moment on on experts out there because that's an overused word. And at the Whiskey Society here, we have a very simple rule. It's know what you like, why you like it, and drink what you like, not what anyone else tells you. That's our rule. And we certainly get in fierce debates over Pete, no Pete, this, that, and right. And we have fun over that. But at the end of the day, we always tell everyone, drink what you like, because it's about you and what you enjoy. And so let's pull back and talk about that word expert a little bit. And, and certainly what you think about whiskey experts out there. Yeah, I always uh, I always say that as soon as you hear the word expert, uh, your red flag should go up and you should get ready to turn around and run. Uh, one of the things, for example, I abhor giving tasting notes and I try to do them at a minimum throughout. You know, I've got 175 bottles that are previewed in that book. And I tried to really just give some high notes on that and not go down into detail because I don't want to put anything into someone else's brain because I am an expert. I wrote the book, right? To your point, we're all experts. We just have to learn how to actually understand our own physiology and physiognomy. And that leads us on to what we like and what we don't like. However, there's a huge intimidation factor in drinking fine spirits, as you know, just like there's a huge intimidation factor in drinking wine. And I've poured maybe, you know, 20,000 samples over the past 10 or so years for people all over the world. And the thing that comes back to me over and over and over again is an apology that they're not connoisseurs. And so people have an automatic stigma that they don't know what they're tasting because they don't know how to taste it. But they do. They do know how to taste it. And the thing, the difference between them and me or you is that we've been around it for a while, that we've developed the vocabulary to put a word to that. Mm -hmm. And that comes, thankfully, from practice. And I even list, list, for example, inside the book, there's the, the tasting wheel. 
that is used by the Scotch Whiskey Testing Institute, which is kind of like a standardized uh, tasting wheel. And it helps people develop that vocabulary. Mostly it's A, can I smell it? B, do I like it or do I not like it? And then what's the simple word that I can attach to that like or not like? So am I tasting sweet? Am I smelling sour? Am I smelling salty? And then from there, you can go down to what's personal. The other thing that flavor experts will tell you is that your sense of taste and smell is one part, your physiology, which we all share. The second part is your own cultural experience. So if you grew up not knowing what coriander smelled or tasted like, when you picked it up in whiskey, you'd not be able to identify it, right? It would be one of those, what is that? Same thing with clove or cardamom or something like that. But if that is something that's part of your cultural identity, then you'll be able to understand that and pull it out. The second thing is that one word descriptions are not sometimes not even appropriate. And I give an example in the book, the first time that I tasted Lagavulin, I wrote down a tasting note that said it felt as if I was sitting in the dumpster behind the infirmary after the Battle of Helm's Deep, right? So that was a very personal yeah. note to me. And I can read that today, and I know exactly what I was going through. It was medicinal. It was funky. It was vegetal. It was otherworldly. It kind of like a, like a war happened in my mouth that I don't quite understand. I, got, I grew up a little bit. It was all of these emotional things happened to me. And that was my personal tasting, though. Now, I happen to adore Lagavulin, but that's how it affected me. And that's what I try to get encourage people to do is find that thing. My daughter, has, who's in the industry, she's got a terrific palate, and she's got a really wonderful sense of imagination where she comes up with these really wonderful descriptions of what this tastes like to her. But that's very specific to her. So yeah, so that's really the expert. The expert's in all of us. Yeah, I'm their spirit guide. There you go, right? <laughs> spirit guide, educator, facilitator, because having that vocabulary right? It helps us know what we like and why we like it. Because now we can say, well, I like this because, and we've got some vocabulary there, right? But I remember right. when I first tasted and many people, you know, you first start tasting, you're like, well, it's, it's sweet, but I don't quite know what that is. And then over time you learn, well, that's the vanilla, that's the caramel, right? Or, or that's spicy. Well, that's the, the cardamom, that's the cinnamon, right? And you have to learn these things over time. Yeah. And that's why and that's why practice is so important. Yep. I, practice <laughs> makes perfect. So well, well said. Well, hey, Robin, I have sure enjoyed our conversation today. And I know I've got some great ideas just in terms of what's going on in the world right now. Some great ideas how to connect with people in this time of isolation. I certainly have some newfound knowledge about whiskey. And I'm excited to go out there and, and drink virtually with people, right? Drink over the web and, and have these conversations and connect with people. So thank you for helping us do that. My pleasure, Tim. And thanks for having me on here. This was really wonderful of you to do this. And I, I greatly appreciate the support uh, behind the book and of the whiskey industry. I mean, you are an ambassador for whiskey, for the entire category, man. And, and the whole idea of this whole category is to create more people like you. 
right? Mm-hmm. To get that, you know, fervent feeling and go out and spread the word and get other people to, uh, to join in with you. So, yeah. so here's to all of us on that. And then lastly, where can we pick up your book? Amazon, where else is it found? Yeah, so you can find it at Amazon.com. You can find it at Barnes & Noble. I don't uh, suggest going out right now, but uh, they are on the bookshelves. Uh, you can call your local bookstore. If, if you want to order from your local bookstore, um, you can call them and uh, they can go uh, and yep. order it. There's also something online called Indie Books. Indie Books is an online source where they will actually route you to your local bookstore. And then you can order it from them. The bookstore will pick it up and then you can work it out with the bookstore how to pick it up. So yeah, there's lots of ways to get it. It's out there. And uh, yeah, thank you. And, and then how can people connect with you? How can they learn more about what you do and, and how you help the, the industry out there? Well, thanks. So yeah, you can find me at my website, which is www.robinrobinsonllc.com. Everything about what I do in the industry, um, everything about the book and you know, some of my thoughts. I've got one thing up there called manifestos where I get to pontificate about stuff. So yeah, uh, there's a lot you can find out a little bit more about me. And then uh, there's a, uh, um, a contact form on the page there. that if you wanted to uh, get in touch with me, you can do that as well. Excellent. Well, hey, thank you again for being generous with your time and, and sharing some of your knowledge with us. Well, Tim, this has been absolutely amazing. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. And thank you very much. You're welcome. You've been listening to the Bakersfield Whiskey Society podcast. We take you behind the tastings and beyond the label into the story of the people, the places, and the process that make whiskey what it is. For more beyond the podcast and to hang with the community, learn, and to hang with friends, attend a live tasting. You'll love it. Visit us at BakersfieldWhiskeySociety.com. We can't wait to have you in the family. So till next time, sit back, pour a good one, enjoy, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening. We enjoyed it. 